Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. <laughs> I tell you what, I don't know about you, but that theme song is turning into a proper earworm. It's really catchy. <laughs> God, thank you so much again, Gordon Milton. Now then, episode four. Yes. Free for all. A brilliant title. Written by... Uh, Paddy Fitz. Now, who is this mysterious creature? Well, we know who it is, don't yes, we? Yes, indeed. This is this is Magoo in town. This whole episode, and I believe the Fitz is from Fitzgerald, his mother's. His ma- yes, his mother's name. maiden name. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> uh, one of these. He was. He's a big fan of his pseudonyms. His old uh, Patrick McGowan. Um First thing to say, I think we talked about in the past quite a lot about the the production order and how it completely contradicts mm. the running order and all that kind of stuff. And maybe you saying about the Chimes of Big Ben that they needed a good strong. Episode and that's what the Chimes of mm. Big Ben was. Mm-hmm. It was a good, enjoyable, plot, plotty one. And with ABC, you still had to. I mean, you can see in their minds they still need to hang on to the Danger Man crowd, and yes. that's what ABC did. Had Free for All been the second episode, which is clearly when you see it, it kind of should have been. Yes, definitely. I think I can see exactly why they pushed it back because I think everyone would have gone, "What the hell is this?" I am. There was a lot of references in this episode in, to him being new to the village. Yes. So it do, it does. And it, of course it was second in production order. Yes. So it does make perfect sense that this should be the second this should story. Be. But it was, it's such a brutally pessimistic yes. episode um, that I think it pro- there was a danger of it alienating a sort of core ITC audience. You see, I, I would say this is the quintessential yes. prisoner episode. It is. At fourth place, it was it was a good place for people to sort of go. Oh my goodness, this is yeah. this is something a bit special. We've had the espionage story, but I, yeah, I think they needed a little bit of buffer zone to get comfortable yes, to find themselves definitely. to sort of find their way around the village. There they are, and now this. Well, I've got a, a quote for you here from uh, an interview McGowan did in 1983, and he says, "When I write my scripts, I do them very fast. The three I wrote for the prisoner, I did in 36 hours mm. at a stretch for each one." Yes. Which is pretty That's pretty good. Yeah, pretty admirable. I'm still trying to finish scripts I started writing <laughs> when I was 20. But there's so much depth in this script. Yes. I mean, I've got pages and pages of notes oh, yeah. about this episode. It's an absolute statement of intent episode, isn't yes. it? Yes. This is the political one. But you can rip apart every scene. Mm. There's, there's no chaff. No, <laughs> no, no. And, it, and, it, and it, even when it sort of veers off into sort of strange directions. No, directed by... Well, you tell me what you think, because I know it's directed by Patrick McGoohan. Well, he has the credit. Mm. Now, from what I've read, is that Don Chaffee was the original director and actually shot some of the scenes. I don't know which scenes, but... I suspect, from what I've read, that he basically directed the Port Merion set scenes. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of Port Merion. It's it's nice when you sort of of get a bit used to seeing the the sets they built of Port Merion with, you know, Mm. the fake backdrops not to actually see them all walking around what is clearly Port Marion yes and it's not his stunt double he turns around it is him it's um it's probably besides Arrival one of the most and possibly checkmate one of the the, the great uses of Port Marion as as the exterior set yes it's it's there throughout there's very little studio based 
exterior stuff in this episode. Yeah, and they very successfully make it look vast. Yes. A, a labyrinthine, walking around for hours. And really, if you've been there, it's... Uh, the the main area that they use for the for the village itself is actually quite tiny. You could you could run across it in about mm. in about three minutes. It is smaller than it looks when you when you actually visit Pilmerian, isn't it? Yes, no, uh, the, no, not that it isn't staggeringly beautiful, but uh, the way they use it. But I as I understand it, when they went to Boromwood to shoot the interior scenes, yeah. McGowan did most of those. Yes, and there was a bit of a, a well, well, gonna, well. I'll I've leave this to you. I've got a quote from Tony Sloman. In an interview that he did in 1999 for In the Village, he said, Free For All, particularly, was directed by Don Chaffee, and Pat didn't like it. And Don and Pat were very close, and Pat really wanted to take over Free For All and shoot extra material. Yeah, and no, that's interesting. I mean, what I gleaned was that Chaffee had done most of the set work at Port Merion, mm. and then McGowan had done the rest but got the credit. And feeling a little bit bad, possibly... Uh, when the situation was reversed in Checkmate, he gave Don Chaffee the directorial credit. Yeah, um, possibly. Even though because there was a similar thing going on. It's not all cut and dry, is it? No. Is anything? <laughs> nothing is cut and dry. No. And especially with unions and credits and, and things like that. And uh, you know, not everything is not always as, as it seems in terms of credits. There are examples within shows like Doctor Who where a writer has written the core elements of the script and then script editors have come in and hijacked it and changed it round but they still retain the original writer credit yes but probably haven't done as much work as the script editor yes you you wonder where the hand of george markstein uh, lay mm. in, in this particular episode because i think he would have he would have detested this yes this is this yes. is it would have been pat this is simply 100% allegory what's going on he can almost, uh, if he'd had anything to do with it, I suspect it was insert speedboat chase here. <laughs> I've put I put an action scene in Pat. <laughs> yeah. Continuing the prisoners' fantastic predictive skills in terms yeah. of technology, we see number two appear on a video call screen. Yes, much like we do today on on Skype and Zoom. Which oh, technology he... did not exist at that time. You can imagine the village Zoom quizzes. <laughs> Oh, God, how tedious. <laughs> what are questions? <laughs> uh, questions are a burden to themselves? Correct. Oh, seven, Six points. <laughs> Partial credit. <laughs> and again, with that slightly off-putting uh, prisonerish aspect of, uh, right, I'll see you in two seconds. Door opens. I'm there. <laughs> Mohammed, I presume. can come to Mohammed. Everest, I presume. <laughs> and then that very strange... Can we talk about this? Because this is something I... I'd, would have totally overlooked when I yeah. saw it at 17, according to the rules of Hoyle. Well, you know what that is. I do now, but yes. at the time, I have, I presumably he's uh, somebody who invented rules. So it's a card game uh, allegory. He's uh, yeah. as, as, as mixing his metaphors, going from mountaineering. Uh, it's a wonderfully brilliant sort of, sort of two wordsmiths trying to sort of battle it out mm. with each other while, whilst making each other breakfast. So it's essentially number six saying, oh, are we playing by the rules? Mm. But then which rules? Yes. Hoyle's rules? Uh, using well, that as a synonym for playing by the book. Yes. Is it, there are two, aren't there? There are two Hoyles. There are. There's also, and, and this is, this is <laughs> if you think about the control room mm. uh, in terms of all the constellations that are shown on the dome, and also if you, if you also look closely at some of the wide shots, you can see what looks like a little moon, mm. or it's a rover, I'm not sure, but it's also kind of spinning around the top. I'm, I'm guessing it's a moon. Yeah. Now, 
Sir Fred Hoyle was a British mathematician and astronomer, best known as the foremost proponent and defender of the steady state theory of the universe. Which, so which Hoyle is he talking about? Is We're guessing it is Edmund Hoyle, but there is another Hoyle which has links to um, astronomy. I love that. But in steady state theory, the universe is always expanding, but maintaining a constant average density. Well, that's what I've always thought. But I thought it might be a nice little thing to throw in as a, as a different kind of line of, uh, of reasoning as to which Hoyle he's talking about. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, it is. Obviously, Edmund, because of the rules of the game. But Yes, but it, it, how lovely to have every, every single word that comes out of these actors' mouths can be interpreted in at least two different ways. But go on. if you Google steady state theory and mm. go onto Google Images, there are three circles, or ah. three globes, increasing in size. So make of that what you will. <laughs> much make of much make yes. much of it. I imagine yes. And then they um, and then they make each other breakfast, which yeah. is one of the most delightful scenes. Breakfast plays a big part in the show already. Mm. He's had three decent, pretty decent breakfasts. Mm. I think this one is uh, kippers. It seems uh, that are brought to him some toast and marmalade. Isn't that a lovely way he says that toast? <laughs> it's just it's quite a sort of gentle. There's almost like an immediate thawing of relationships between these two men. Let's have a delightful breakfast. It's still the game of chess. Yes. And, and, yes. Sizing up each other's moves, isn't it? Most close-ups of number six's face, you can actually see, basically are shots of him mm. trying to work out chess moves, trying to work out what's going on and mm. how to... Wonderful tiny flickers. There's a fantastic moment when he's, he's had the plot explained to him. If you run to number... T- if you, I want you to run against me. And then this kind of look on his face... What happens if I win? <laughs> and you could just see his eyes, this little flicker. It's like, hang on, hang on. <laughs> yeah. This could be interesting. The exposition of this scene, it goes from just sitting breakfast, I pl- explain the plot, and then they open up the shutters, mm. and suddenly it's all in motion very, very quickly. Yes. Quite incredibly quickly. Instantaneously, isn't it? Yes. But uh, we're also introduced in this scene to number 58. Yes. Uh, played by Rachel Herbert. One of my two great prisoner crushes. She had worked with... Magoon before, mm. and her, she was very capable with her accents. Right. Uh, I think she was doing a Swiss accent. I'm, is it, she I'm, was in Danger Man. So maybe yeah. that was the one. Yeah. And that's what alerted him, because he knew she had to be talking. And it was gibberish. It was absolute gibberish. It wasn't some fake uh, Eastern European accent. <laughs> Though Apparently she, Magoon made up the language. Yeah. And um, Rachel Herbert had, I think, a Yugoslavian friend or relative. That's right. She played it backwards, didn't she? And then learned how to say... the vocal rhythms. Yeah, which is very sort of straight... Method, isn't it, almost? Yes, indeed. And, of course, uh, not to give too much away, but she's a bit of a double bluff. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, just you have some... The fact that she can't understand anything, she doesn't even speak English, she says at one point. <laughs> it was a strange way. You can see him getting angry and you think, oh, sure, you haven't worked this out yet. Yeah. That's been an interesting thing. You seem a bit um, clueless. He, th- actually, that is an interesting point. In this episode, he does actually appear more clueless than I think he does in any that of the other episodes. in terms of, the, of, of being the second episode. Mm, that yes. would make more sense because he's still being orientated into this society mm. so he's you know he's still not aware of, of what's capable he hasn't been through 
the Chimes of Pig Ben plot or mm. ABC. You know, this is he's literally been through Arrival. He's still finding his feet, isn't he? Yes. Kind of, uh, you know, no, don't worry. This, yeah, this, need, this yeah. needn't be painless. Yeah. This needn't be painless. This needn't, this needn't be painful. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is that number two makes this comment about her. She may be a mere 58. Oh, suggesting that... Um, There's a hierarchy of numbers. Which yeah. does make sense from number one and number two's point of view. Yes. But that makes number six quite important. But also oh, three, four and five are also high level prisoners. But, you know, I mean, the fact that he's six suggests something quite... Uh, that he's, well, I, I guess, I mean, the whole thing is that he's the only one they seem to really care about. Yes. About cracking. So I guess he is important, isn't Maybe he? Maybe three, four and five are on the water side. Well, quite. Or, but that does establish a hierarchy of numbers, mm. which is an obvious. It's obvious. It, it's been there in plain sight all the time with number one and number two. Yeah. This line of dialogue establishes that there is a hierarchy. A mere of fifty-eight. Yes. Oh, yes. I hadn't thought of that. There's another line that number two says when he arrives. Mm. He says, uh, "The mountain can come to Mohammed." He says, "Everest, I presume." Mm. How's num- where's number one? Or how's number one? Yes. And he says, "At the summit." Now, mm. for years, I thought. That meant he was at a summit. <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the COP, sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. one of those kind of global summits. But it does work on two levels. The I, summit of Everest, but he could also be at a summit. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that funny? It's like with, the, with age, you kind of well, yeah, the I mean, true I, intention I, of that dialogue. I, th- I, thought, I thought he rules a hoil. I thought he was just he did made, made something up uh, mm. when I was a kid. And now, and now it works on a, a much uh, greater level once yeah. you get a bit older. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's something else he says. Uh, when this, when he stepped out onto the balcony, he's already sort of suggested that he runs. Mm. And he says, "What? Um, basically, you'll. What, what if I win? Well, you'll meet number one. Mm. Number one will no longer be a mystery to you. That's correct. Yeah, noble. No, yes. Uh, which I'll introduce you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> which knowing what we know is uh, quite an interesting sort of bit of uh, back and forth, isn't it? But the, the village has set itself a problem here, hasn't it, with this election? Um, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. No. Um, because ultimately, I mean, if, if number twos are only selected by an, an annual election mm. uh, and there are, how, what, 17 number twos that we <laughs> yeah. meet in this that suggests... There are three number twos in this episode. Well, yes. Well, well if four if you include Robert Riatti. Yes, and we, we need to talk about him. At some point, we do the unsung number two. Yes. Do you think there was any particular reason why Eric Portman wasn't uh, didn't announce his? It's probably time. Uh, he didn't get to sort of just record his. Not, he's not the only one though. No, then no, this bits isn't recorded either. The new number two, which just instantly makes you think of Bond films. Yeah, Robert Rietti's dialogue it just it's generic but it has that menace about it oh it does and his um, um, he's got a much better laugh than colin gordon yes sorry <laughs> sorry, sorry to rub it in colin and you, you <laughs> did very well it's just that laugh gracious me but you're right and and we don't see these elections for any of the other number twos and in fact in it's your funeral you have an incumbent number two yes to take to, over yes by that point they've decided dictatorship is the way forward <laughs> yeah that's just yes <laughs> Which I think he even mentions in this episode. But so, I, quite, I quite like that because we were talking in an earlier episode about this kind of uh, positing the idea of each episode standing alone mm. rather than as a continuous arc. I know that doesn't make sense from a narrative perspective when we're looking at this, but it's, it's almost like you can take every single episode as a standalone, 
as a, as a you know start, middle, and an end. Yes, and it's self-contained. It doesn't have to lead on. So the rules don't always apply to other episodes. Yeah. So so if this is allegory, it doesn't really matter. You could actually kill number six at the end of an episode, and he'd be back next week to do that again. Mm. Not that they would, because that would be way too confusing. But the rules, <laughs> you know, it's like the new Star Trek films. Oh, I say new, 2009, wasn't it? The I, Abrams Oh, films. God, I still think of them as brand new. You know, Like you iPods. Have, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but when you've got 50 years of Star Trek history and you're starting to write something new, you've got all that continuity you've got to deal to with. To worry about. Well, didn't they kind of get around that by changing time yeah. in the first one? Yeah, it was one an alternate a, universe, wasn't it? As a sort of uh, way of kind of wiping everything off yeah. the blackboard. But you could apply that also to The Prisoner. Mm. You could have every single episode as a standalone within its own kind of little reality because there are rules that don't really apply or get chucked out the window in later episodes. Yeah. I mean, there still has to be sort of the majority of a through line. Mm. Um, For the audience's benefit. Yes. Otherwise, they just give up. Of course, but at the same time, I mean, it's a, it's. I mean, you have it, this is the episode that's, that McGowan kind of rails against politics mm. essentially, and so it's got to all be about politics. It's got to be about elections and stuff like that. But you, this it's it's all concentrated on this one episode. And yes, if you yes. if you if you examine it too much, like we're doing now, mm. sort of, well, where, where are the other elections? Yeah, what happens to yeah, the other yeah. number twos? Are they like it? It kind of crumbles a little bit. Yeah. So I think it's probably best just simply not to. But this is what I'm saying. Yes, this allows yeah. them to be standalone. If you kind of throw that out the window mm. and just say, right, this is our episode about election, about the politics, about governments, about you know how there's a view that whoever you elect, it doesn't really matter because they're all the same. They're all puppets, or they're all front people for something greater. Mm. Um, I mean, there's even Illuminati iconography. I was, I was going to mention that. Yes, you know. So it's it's you know, and the fact we don't see this again creates a problem for the narrative as an arc moving through the, the story, which if you watch any of the other shows, ITC shows, Randall Knockout, Department Test, they are all standalone, but they still conform to their own rules yes. that are set. And the prisoner doesn't. It, it breaks those rules mm. because it says, right, we've established this, that we've established that number twos have elections. Next episode, uh, forget that. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> But I don't think that's laziness. I think that's by design. That's what I'm saying. I think that's by design. Well, I mean, one of the nice things about I, I thought about this episode was that when you get to the end, you realise that the whole thing has simply been an incredibly convoluted plot, mm. not necessarily to get the information out of number six, but merely to completely destroy any chance, mm. his any any idea he has that he's getting out of here. Mm. Almost to play with him. I mean, like, play with him like a cat with a mouse. Mm. Name of, uh, which... Uh, the, the, the cat and mouse... Uh, the cat and mouse... Club. Was it a pub, club, club, pub, pub, club, or... Club. I think it's a member's bar. It is. It says members only on the, on the arch. Um, so really, I mean, it's just the whole thing's basically been cooked up. Mm. So I mean it, that could that could work perfectly well. We've, we've decided we're going to have elections for now. Mm. Yes, I mean they've already established that things happen in the village that that can't work in normal yeah, life. Yeah. The, you know, the uh, I'll be there in two minutes. Hello. But each TV show and each film, if you, that universe theory, mm. and you you know like Tarantino's films are all set within the same universe. Yes, and they all smoke red apples. They smoke red apples, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in Pulp Fiction, Uma Thurman's character talks about this TV pilot mm. that she was uh, auditioning for. Fo oh, Fox, Fox Force, Force 5, 5, yeah. Which is basically the plot of Kill Bill and with the same characters. So, 
I mean, Tarantino's gone on record saying, yeah, they're all within my universe. This is my universe. I've created this. You know, mm. in his kind of intense American way. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's get lots of feet. <laughs> this foot fetish. But that's the thing, isn't it? When you write, when you create something, the rules are set by God and God is you, the screenwriter. And you know this as a screenwriter. Mm. You generally conform to the rules of the known universe but you don't have to yes you know gravity could be slightly different in that universe or you know there are 364 days in that universe you don't have to conform to that but it's a better touchstone for an audience isn't it yes because they can identify with the world as they know it and uh, yes thank you you. what i'm saying i do yeah it's it's that created universe of the prisoner is the rules don't apply like you said and they don't conform to our universal rules so the laws of physics in the in the village are completely different, as we can see, with certain elements that crop up from time to time. Mm. I mean, there's huge. You can write a paper on this. I think this 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 can be our thesis. What I thought was quite nice actually was when they go outside Number Six's house. There's a lovely shot of Helen Vaughan Hatcher. Mm. Carry as she walks down, <laughs> as we know, one of the body doubles. Yes, yes, for, and um, a sort of Penrith uh, Day Drive uh, resident. It's nice to see her mm. actually. You know, see her face in the prison. So a little call out there for for Helwyn. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you what, what stood out for me watching it again. It was how funny it is. Mm. I mean, I mean, it's, as I say, it's 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 brutally pessimistic, but at the same time, there's some proper, almost like stuff from that was the week that was. <laughs> Particularly when the um, the journalists who've got, stri- I think, isn't he called one one three B? One of them. Yes. This is, which is, I think, that's the only time that happens. But that's all fantastic. Sort of. Uh, uh, what are your plans? Blah, blah, no, no comment. <laughs> and then he, uh, the well, they're putting words into his into number six's mouth, aren't they? Yes. And that again is another kind of premonition to, for today with fake news. Mm. You know, something happens and they put a completely different spin. But that just states that fake news has been around, or maybe it's called fake news now. But it's like this freedom of the press to make up any old rubbish. And put it in the mouths of somebody. Well, it's who's, been around for years. Yeah. Who is it who said um, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on? Well, there's a painting, isn't there? Yeah. Of truth emerging naked from a well because the clothes have been stolen by the lions already. <laughs> <laughs> but also the, the wonderful thing about the uh, this nonsense of an interview and that lovely punchline. Punch what are you doing? Mind your own business. No comment. comment. <laughs> yeah. Played by Harold Behrens. Who was in... He was... A, a, well, he was in uh, Danger Man with... Um, McGowan, but McGowan loved him. Apparently, he was a very funny man, yeah. and McGowan likened him to a court jester. So he wanted him. He just wanted a small role because he liked having him around, and he made him laugh, and uh, which I thought was a lovely little yeah kind of thought. And of course, the other um, the paparazzo mm. uh, played by Dean Cooper, who also plays the double. Yes, as he's printing out. The tally-ho. Yeah, well, that almost reminded me a bit of, uh, in your, like you say, sort of the premonition aspect mm. of it. As soon as this interview's happened, uh, take, uh, as soon as the interview's taken place, it's instantly on the tally-ho. Yeah. Which kind of Again, reminds me about Twitter. But that's today. Yeah. Yeah. It's information is just shared immediately. Yeah. You've got and, it's, sp- and it's completely false. <laughs> well, well, is it? I mean, let's say you're walking along and something happens, newsworthy. Mm. Your immediate reaction will be to get out your phone and film it. Hmm. And then a lot of people then share that on social media. Uh, but there's no censorship. There's no sort of editing. Uh, exactly. There's no sort of head editors to sort of... No, there's no censorship. Mm. You're seeing it raw and as it happened. But this 
where Tally Ho is printed immediately leads towards more of a modern day instantaneous news. Yes. You know, and now twenty four hour rolling news. Yes. Maybe it's that's, maybe that's what it took it's the words out of my mouth. <laughs> but even but even twenty four hour rolling news is just is flawed because as you see, if you ever watch it, they have to fill that airspace. Yes. You know, and something might not be happening, so they'll just show a shot of a podium. Yes, or, or get some imbecilic talking head yes. blowhard to just the rant at the camera. The Prime Minister's about to make a speech. We're just waiting on him now. And let's speak to our political correspondent. And so, What do you think that the Prime Minister's going to say? So, <laughs> so they have to fill, don't they? They have to fill that... that With hypotheticals yeah. of nonsense. And it, it just creates... I think it just creates more of a problem because you don't really... You start to lose interest. This is also the first appearance of the tally-ho. Ah, yes, the tally-ho. For the benefit of our international listeners, this is a very British phrase, isn't it? Tally ho, tally ho, pilots. And <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it originally comes from um, hunting. Oh, tally ho! Is it, what does that actually, does that actually mean? Anything? Well, th- th- there's a bit of a conflict with the etymology. Some people believe it's uh, derived from a French word, um, and some people believe it it comes from a, an Anglo-Saxon word, a war cry, which would be I don't know how you pronounce it, but it would be spelled T A I L L E. Like tally. tail, 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 no, tally, and I then oat, h a u t, like oat cuisine. That's yeah. the same spelling. But some people believe it means swords up. Yeah. Also, um, Soho in um, in London's West End was also Soho in in New York, isn't it? Yes. And, um, I think there's one in Sydney, but Soho is a, also a hunting cry. Oh, fantastic! So it's, it's lovely that some of these words, the etymology, goes back generations. There's a sort of implication, isn't there? Also, that the 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 newspaper is doing what tabloid newspapers do. They hunt people. Mm. There, there is a horrible... I like that link. <laughs> <laughs> I might steal that when people ask me, what do, what do I think is the relevance of tally? Well, that's what I do. <laughs> I know, but we can share. Yeah, that's one of mine. Uh, it literally came off the top of my head. I can't back it up with anything. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 there's that awful... It's that predatory aspect of, of, of the news media, isn't there? It is. They, they, they are out to get you somehow. All, all the stuff, hearing... Stories about uh, celebrities being chased down alleys. Yes. Sienna Miller was testifying about that, sort of just being pursued by these horrible men with cameras. And it's, it's for what? There's always that metaphor of, of men in riding jackets chasing them with hounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, instead of instead of hounds these days, it's uh, it's uh, cameras. Yes. Um, I think another thing we've got to mention, and this kind of adds fuel to the John Drake fire, mm. is the is the shot of McGowan in the election banners. <laughs> Is his Danger Man publicity photo? Yes, which is also used uh, obviously at the front with the uh, the axes going with across the design, it. Yeah, and it's also on a fridge magnet on my uh, oven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the most obvious explanation is it's a budgetary thing and it's just saving money right. by using. Yeah, we need a photo of Pat. Yes, but I reckon Mark Stein had a hand in that, and I thought I think Mark Stein said no. Let's use the Danger Man publicity <laughs> photo because I want to still keep my audience thinking that this is Danger Man. Yeah, sequel. It's the same character, so it kind of adds that weight, doesn't it? Adds that fuel to the the Drake fire. Yeah. <laughs> There's a wonderful bit of editing uh, that goes on when he's addressing the crowd for the first time through his tannoy. Uh, when he says, um, "You know, I'm not a number. I'm a person," and his balloon pops, and again the balloon pop. Yeah. Uh, and then they're all cracking up, laughing. Yeah. And then there's the which is such a lovely sort of prisonerish sixty-ish. 60s kind of Ken Russell type editing mm. moment. And then while he's talking to them, addressing them, you see Angela Muscat there holding the prompt cards as if it was some sort of warm up act uh, at, a, at, a, at a talk show. 
a, which A suggests it kind of makes an inference that this is simply this idiotic entertainment. Mm. But then it's progress, progress, progress. Yeah. Which is one of the Magoon's bugbears. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. What else does he say? Well, there's, there's another one. It says, it's like, oi, 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 or... I can't remember. And it's, there's I didn't a weird really spelling. Pay that too much, give that too much attention, to be honest. Well, let's just not talk about it, then. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, but that's manipulation, isn't it? Yes, That's yeah. telling people what to think and pe- telling what people what to say. And I think it leads into what you were saying there before. And we've had this in Britain, is when you have an established government in place who are very good at marketing themselves, yes. towing the line within their party... And then when anybody opposes them or stands up and says something radical or something truthful or something that would actually help the general public laugh at them mm. or denigrate them or put them down. As, as kind of dangerous radicals. Exactly. Yes. And, and we've seen that recently in, in the UK, but we've also seen that in the past as well, in the 1960s, 1970s. Yes. It's like anybody who's, who dares to kind of stand up against whoever's in power is manipulate or the, the the voters are manipulated in some way to react to this. Well, particularly when they, they've got the the backing of the press, mm. who are sort of willing accomplices in 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 this and in life. Yeah. Um, so it's a brilliant reflection. Yes, it's, it's the press. It's the village press that's not an independent body or independent press. They're towing the village line. Yeah, but it's. Um, I mean, it, it's it's all these aspects of politics that are just kind of taken care of, kind of one mm. after the other in this episode. So, so the partisan nature of the press when they're in cahoots mm. with, with a, a political party. And that's that's more important than ever in the UK at the moment. And they're talking about the BBC and how the BBC's funded and how the BBC... People say the BBC is biased. Some people... But the, the irony is people say the BBC is biased, but that's said by people on... Oh, it's, it's, the argument. it's wonderful. <laughs> I do feel terribly sorry for the BBC sometimes. They, they, they cannot win. No, even if they're you know, impartial. If, you if, if oh, you're taking a centrist, yes. moderate <laughs> view of this, you cowards. So even, right. even with the best intention for the best, you know, reporters, journalists, those kind of people, they're, they're, they can't win either way. No. And of course, there are partisan presenters, journalists who will toe a certain line for a certain party. And yeah, you can see that clearly in across the world. It's not just the UK. No, of course, and and things like sort of Fox News and the, the rise the rise of the ultra partisan, mm. not just kind of ch- program or mm. ch- just network, mm-hmm. has been such a defining aspect, mm. game changing aspect of politics for the last twenty years, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and it hasn't, and it's showing no signs of getting better. But once well, again. What I've also read was some interesting experiences that actors and extras had with McGowan during the filming of... Of this episode? Of this episode. Oh, go on. So quite a few people saying Patrick McGowan was the perfect gentleman, yes. always had time, he'd always stop by, you know, a scene and congratulate you, you're doing a good job, and how are you, and the perfect gentleman. Yes. But there's a, there was an extra called Samuel Owen Hughes, who mm. I'm guessing was a, was a Penryn Daedraith. Uh, local Aight, yes um, accidentally trod on McGowan's foot <laughs> during one of the scenes and being you know as, as we were so very polite in Wales um, apologised to McGowan he went oh I'm so sorry and McGowan <laughs> snapped at him and went shut up it's a scene <laughs> <laughs> so 
poor old Samuel had uh, the brunt of McGowan's anger in that. Get to the back of the crowd. Yes. So you can <laughs> see, in, in, in terms of the personable aspect of McGowan, mm. it sounds like he was very friendly and, you know, genuine person. Until you stood on his foot. Or, or until you actually got into the technical or the actual professional elements, then he expected you. I'm guessing a little bit like Stanley Kubrick in that he expects a certain level of proficiency and professionalism. Yes. In the production. Which, frankly, I, 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 don't, I don't see a problem with that. I, don't I, th- see I, th- a problem. I think you're entitled to it. I think you're entitled to expect that. In one of our upcoming interviews, you know, we hear firsthand from an actor their experience of working with McGowan. Hmm. And I think it kind of leads towards professionalism. I think it's dealing with somebody on a professional basis as an actor or as a crew member. You have to be. Yeah, on your game. Raise, your game has got to be. But he, I mean, he did surround himself by people he'd worked with before. He who he knew would would deliver the goods, particularly people like Don Chaffee. But um, if you, I mean, you as you know, you know, you're dealing with television production. You know, you've got a certain budget. You've got a certain. You've got production schedules. You've got a certain amount of time to get things done. You might want to do a hundred takes, but you don't have the time. No. You know, you've got a, a shooting block, and that's got to be completed within that shooting block, because then it's like a domino, and it'll. Yeah, affect yeah. everything else, and of course, this was his. Yeah, and it wasn't pressure just pressure there. Yeah, and it, and I think the pressure, as possibly we will discuss in later episodes, the pressure I think this did get to him, mm. particularly once. I mean, have we established at what point he found out that this wasn't going to be seven episodes or even seventeen? They, they actually wanted twenty six. I think that was near the beginning. Really? Well, I'm guessing so. I mean, if you look at the shooting order, the core episodes are shot early on, aren't they? Yeah. So maybe it was it was on the run up to that because it's, it might have been set by the production schedule. Earlier. He just wants to get the, the six done first, yeah. and everything else is secondary. It's just that weird sort of aspect of having once upon a time so early on when you know that it finishes with him about to meet number one. Mm. It's clearly going to be the second to last episode, mm-hmm. and then suddenly they're shooting the schizoid man afterwards. It's like, but you can, can you imagine that from McGowan's point of view? He's done what he wanted to achieve. Mm. He, he's, he's he's shot everything. Yeah, it's done. It's, it, it, as far as he's concerned, he's, he's done what he set out to do. But then, for the benefit of of Lou Grade, he has to shoot another ten episodes. Yeah, you know. Which, and I think that I think I think it was stuff like that that made him a little bit one. Well, what might I say irascible? Yeah. In later in later There's episodes, a, maybe a contempt there, or for, just an just an irritation. This is this is actually you've taken something of mine, hmm. and you've 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 tampered with it. You've yeah. messed with it. You're diluting it. I know that Rachel Herbert thought that he was an absolute darling. He, uh, she, she stayed in Port Marion, and he was apparently phoning her up to make sure the room yes, was all right. I, I and, saw that. Yeah. Um, so yes, now he was, he was still very much the gentleman. Just kind of make sure you're there on time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the next scene I think we should talk about is the council. Yes. Yes. And you've alluded to this before. I spotted this for the first time uh, with, for my rewatch. Mm. Um, the the eye in the triangle behind number yes. two's chair. Now, all I know about um, masonry and all this kind of thing is what I gleaned from watching The Man Who Would Be King. Right. So I am no expert in this. Uh, or National Treasure. It's on the, um, <laughs> on the American... I, I think from National it? Treasure, yeah. I got the fact that there's a pyramid with an eye on the dollar bill. The Illuminati like symbol. Yes, I've never. I just instantly associate this with with cranks, so yes. I don't really pay much attention. But, but I think it's. I think it is worth just discussing because he, he's in a room talking to people who are non-responsive, mm. apart from number two. He's the only person who's, who's not. And there's a pulsing glow from that eye. Mm. 
So even though he's talking to these people who are just robots, yes, who just, elected you, and they're, they're, they're there to almost to to represent an, rep- une- exactly. an unelected yeah. body. Yes, exactly. They have no power. Mm. They have no. It's 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 yeah. It's it's like the parish councils or you yeah. know, all those, <laughs> isn't it? they don't really have power. It's a kind of semblance of power that affects where shrubberies should be placed or yeah. when the roadworks should be done. <laughs> you know, it's a pocket it, democracy. A pocket democracy, absolutely. Mm. But I, I quite like that visual metaphor. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who votes. It doesn't matter who runs because the outcome's always going to be the same. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that you're standing there kind of justifying your existence or trying to argue with these people because they're not listening because they have no power themselves. Mm. Number two is the one who's calling the shots. And, he, and he's the only one calling the shots, apart or from... The eye. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, 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 it's such a direct visual reference mm. to, what would you call it, the Illuminati, is that right? I think Illuminati stuff is, you know, there's, I don't think there's any kind of real evidence. A lot of people kind of quote the Rothschilds, don't they, and this kind of global banking system that runs the world. But there's no real evidence of that. But it's it's nice to throw in there because that's what he's doing. He's throwing in all these kind of ideas about politics. Is that, does it really matter if we vote? Mm. The outcome, you know, is the outcome going to be the same or whatever? There's Whatever even the, there's do. I mean there's even the implication that number two himself has no power. Mm. I mean the fact the fact that his his role is so transitory that he's just replaced every every well, week yeah. or every year. They are face, he's election. a figurehead, isn't he? That is he's there as a public face. Yeah. For the public to relate to, but the real power is wielded by yes. number one. And when and when number six does eventually become number two, he has absolutely no power whatsoever, and it's just that the whole thing is empty. Mm. There's there's and it's it's the helplessness the. That you can't you can't complain to anyone. You can't. You have no power. You can't do anything. You, there's there is this. There is only number one, which he says. And then, as he spins to the <laughs> the depths of the uh, of the corridor, he meets uh, twenty six. Yes, played by the wonderful George Benson, who's just... not the, not the pop star of the nineteen eighties, <laughs> but the actor. <laughs> I, I, I was disappointed when I knew George Benson was going to be in the episode, yeah. this episode. And he didn't do any music. He didn't not, sing any song. Not one. Not one. Not one. But I love this character because he has that blend of, like you say, bonhomie. Yes. But also he switches. Yes. He that just... shows you're afraid. Yes. And isn't there, there's a fantastic line, which is like something out of Yes Minster, mm. when it cuts to uh, number two. So where did you get this chap? Oh, he's from the civil service. He fit right in. Which <laughs> 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 is, that's, that's almost like this, just, that's from a, that's almost like another writer manages to squeeze that line in. Well, another thing is, is he wears a morning suit. Go on. So I, I only noticed this really on this watch, but yeah, he's wearing a morning suit. So if you, if you look at how he's dressed, yeah. he's wearing the long, Tails, and that's why they're called morning suits. They would be worn by gentlemen in the morning when riding horses, which is not something that you would wear in the civil service or wear generally in an office setting. No, I can't believe it is. But there's again, that. there's another horse riding slash hunting illusion there. Yeah, oh, fantastic. And then we have this. Uh, well, eight. <laughs> another thing is that this was maybe the fourth episode in a row with a strange number six is sugar intake uh, discrepancies. Yeah, Fascinated by how much sugar he takes. Or doesn't take. Or doesn't, yeah, exactly. It doesn't, does it? 
No, that's absolutely wonderful. And he's just a delightful sort of character. And yes, again, laced with threat. But then that malevolence when he switches, mm. when he pushes the button to restrain number six. And once again, you get that marvellous imagery of the, the lines and the circle and the square imagery. Yeah. Which is curious. I don't know quite what's going on. Quite. So you've got the circle for no, mm. I'm guessing, and the square means yes. That's a lie. Yes. <laughs> but why a silhouette? I, well, I don't know. And it's, it's, something, it's something that number two can watch. This, this is what he's watching. But why can't they just watch the vision, the video? Because this kind of looks better. But it means more effort. <laughs> That's never stopped them doing anything. No, but you know what I mean? In, in, well, well, actually, no, because if you, if, you, if you listen to Arrival, the um, audio commentary, when you've got Bernard Williams talking about you know, the economy of shots yeah. and reusing a lot of Peter Swanick's stuff and the control room is reused footage, mm. uh, helicopter shots... They try and save money and time wherever possible. So this would have been an extra level of detail that they've gone to to do this. Why not just show the video? Yeah. That would be cheaper and easier to do. But no, they go to the effort of creating silhouettes. Yeah. And they the quite interesting silhouettes. So there has to be some meaning to it. But how that ties in with this... I don't really know. Again, I, and I don't honestly know what's going. On. Well, I mean, this is one of these. It's like the uh, the the electoral pulses on the floor on the chimes of Big yeah. Ben. There's something going on, and obviously they know what's going. On, but I have no idea really what the test is, yeah. why it makes him pass out. It also suggests some kind of telepathy, or mental manipulation. I mean, we have that technology now, which is aiding people who are quadriplegic, paraplegic where you can put the sensors on somebody's head and they can do rudimentary controls of a computer yeah, based on like nerve impulses and things like that. But this is 50 years prior and that technology doesn't exist. But it's like a science fiction kind of trope, like a telepathic trope, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, there's so much of what is The Prisoner is, 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 is pure science fiction, mm. which uh, a lot of it's come true since a lot of it hasn't yet. I mean, ABC is pure science fiction yes, still. Is, yeah. But this, I mean, it's, I mean, they're basically reading... Yeah, reading his mind. Why, how, how do you explain the... Because the, I'm, I'm sure it may have been explained. I just missed it. How he wakes up having passed up and he's now a completely different character. Well, you see some footage from Schizoid Man. Hmm. You notice when the, the lamp... The, the glowing lamp. The strange... Cre- the creme... <laughs> it's, it? it's like a creme caramel. Yes. I always thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the glowing lamp. The glowing lamp. creme caramel, which, which yeah. allegedly brainwashes him. Mm. But, um, yeah, he then goes on to repeat the slogans and vocabulary of the establishment. Yeah. Now, with look a, at what's a, been happening, in, in, especially in Britain and, and America as well, over the past five, six years. You go on BBC Radio 4 in the morning, you hear a lot of politicians repeating slogans, mm. party lines, just repetition, 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 as if it's an answer. Yes. You know? So how are you going to improve blah, 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 blah? You know, and it's and it's usually and it usually involves look, look, look. I think it's important to be clear. It, yes, <laughs> which is yeah, exactly. Let me be clear about this. Yeah, um, a I robust think, system yeah, of. I think it's right that yeah. we yeah. usually with your, the the hands kind of doing a strange bulldozer emotion like that. Yes, we can see that with a lot of plus, and in America as well, they've had this over the past uh, five six years. Well, well, longer even. It, I, don't know I, think this, I think this goes thing. back a while, but yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's certainly—it's it, more prevalent recently, I yeah, think, globally. It's kind of—it's—it's it's a sort of '90s thing mm-hmm. that when when spin doctors became more important than the actual politicians. Mm-hmm. 
And and it was in plain sight as well. Yes. There, was, there was no sort of, who is this mystery masked fiddler? Nobody sees him. It's like, no, it's, Alice, it's Alistair Campbell. He's standing right there. Well, that leads into a scene, another scene, where number six is, re- is reading a prompt card mm, yes. to the, the residents of the village. It's almost like it's like the spin doctors of the 90s, like, like you said, Alistair Campbell. With a kind of dead-eyed performance. It's an interesting... I mean, when he wakes up from that chair and he's a new man, he, he's got a very interesting sort of facial performance. He, he mm. kind of does this very awkward smile. Yes. He, it's the first time I think in the whole thing you see McGoon's teeth. <laughs> because he's... Uh, you will vote for me, of course, won't you? But that, that leads into that kind of a, a two-faced theory, doesn't it, in terms of a politician's private life and a politician's public mm. face. And we're seeing number six's public face in this episode, mm. even though it's he's being coerced mentally. And he tries to break that programming. Hence the speedboat chase that, that yes. follows, doesn't it? When he, he manages to snap himself out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly by, by, shouting, by shouting Magoon-like at uh, Rachel Herbert. You could watch that and think, why, why is there a speedboat chase <laughs> in, in this? What, what purpose does it serve? Why do you think they included, went to that effort for the speedboat, do you think? Uh, I, do, I suspect that may have been a bit of a Mark Steenism. <laughs> You know, this I know, I know. I can see you're going for this allegory angle, Pat. But uh, it's ITC. We need a fight, and we need a, I think a speedboat chase. Um, with can we get some slightly unconvincing stunt doubles to do a lot of this uh, work? You know, the Incredible Hulk. Yes, they they had this mandate to have two Hulk counts. This is the TV show, the Bill Bicks. Yeah, they had a mandate for two Hulk counts per episode. Yes, no more, and, no less. And the kids were waiting for that. I was. Yeah. Of course I was. And I think, you're right, I think Mark Stein has, has kind of said there's not enough fist fight. It's like the, the Star Trek pilot, uh, The Cage. Go on. They say it's too cerebral. You know, we need, um, we need some, get some punching in there. Get some punching in there, get a fist fight going. So they reshot the pilot with Shatner. Yeah. And they had a fist fight at the end, you know, <laughs> because that's what the public wanted. And I think that's probably true with Mark Stein. He's gone, yeah, this is great, Pat, but... Yeah, you know, the public want to see the spy well, element. Well, yeah, I think um, I think McGoon himself was kind of he knew the rules of the game enough to sort of do that mm. sort of thing. But I think this one does feel a little bit sort of crowbarred in. Mm. We need action at some point. There's always it's always the same sort of. There's the swelling of the music, yes. and that's always that always signals some fist fight with a, a henchman yes. or something. Yes. Whether or we need on the beach, and yeah. Rover ultimately brings them back. Whether you need it or not. So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us uh, by searching for podcast free for all, one word. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are free for all pod or one word. So quite easy to find. And feel free if you want to comment, join the group, send messages, all that stuff. Free for all podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. We see you.